0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to the 212th episode of the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and your co-host,
1: Kevin Toefel,
0: And we have an astonishing show for you today. I really just like adjectives. This week, we're going to be talking about a new program that you can load on your MacBook that will actually help you understand what IoT devices are running on your network and how well-behaved they are. We're also going to be talking about the scary, scary stories in the New York Times about facial recognition and overall privacy. There's some laws related to that. Plus, Intel's big news about getting out of modems doesn't apply to us on the smartphone side, but it does apply maybe on the IoT side. We'll talk about that. We've got a lot of self-driving car news. You'll love news from Apple, the U.S. Army, and Waymo. We've got news about Madam A and how to become a skill developer, a new sport created by AI, and a program that allows things to work with Ring. Plus, we'll also talk about the Norsk Hydro ransomware and what that means for industrial IoT security. And our guest this week is Nadir Israel, who is the CTO of Armis, which is an IoT security firm. So we're going to talk about a lot of industrial IoT and enterprise IoT security this week's episode. We're also going to hear from our sponsor, Software AG, talking about common pitfalls for the IoT. And now... Let's kick it off with a message from another one of our sponsors. This week's sponsor is IoT World. You, yes, all of you, are invited to IoT World. This is the intersection of industries and IoT innovation. It's held May 13th through 16th at the Santa Clara Convention Center in Silicon Valley. It's going to bring together 12,500 IoT strategists, technologists, developers, and implementers to put IoT into action within key industry verticals. We at the IoT podcast have an exclusive listener discount of 25% off your pass with the code STACY25. That's S-T-A-C-E-Y 25. Prices are going to go up next Friday, April 26th, so visit iotworldevent.com to register. Okay, Kevin, let's get this show started. First up, we saw last week a couple of news stories about a service called IoT Inspector. And reading about this, I realized that we had actually talked about this almost a year ago. We had uh, Nick Beamster over at Princeton. He and I talked about this program called IoT Inspector, and the idea was he wanted to build something that would monitor the IoT devices on a user's network and see how they behaved. And lo and behold, last week. He launched that app. So, this is a Princeton research project, basically. So, when you download this to see how your devices behave, you're also going to be sharing that device data with the researchers. So, that's important to know.
1: It is important to know. And if anybody does plan to use it, Princeton does list all of the data that IoT Inspector collects. It's actually a lengthy list. I don't think I would personally be concerned about it. Um, But if you're not willing to share any of that information, certainly this is not something you want to run.
0: Well, actually, you can delete all of your data at the end. So you could run it just for yourself, and then you could delete the data. But it's nice if you you don't have qualms about it. This is the sort of third-party research that is hopefully going to force companies to be better you can find it at iot-inspector.princeton.edu. I downloaded it and had it running for a while on my stuff. Now, I'm going to tell you my network is a little wacky right now because I am in the midst of the move and I'm dismantling all of my IoT devices. So not everything is giving data. But the things that are giving data are actually, I've got some pretty good devices on on my network, believe it or not.
1: They're good actors.
0: They are good actors. So Many of them, such as some of the the better actors that I see so far, my Nest thermostat, that behaves very well. Talking about encryption, we're talking about not going weird places on the internet. My Amazon Echo is actually doing pretty well, and so is my Roku. So who knew? I would love to see my Google devices, but unfortunately, my my family unplugged all of them. So I'm like, okay.
1: Well, they're not sending any data. That's the good news.
0: The good news is they're not sending any data. Some things that are a little bit trouble, not troublesome, but kind of not user friendly, the things that this program picks up, they're not labeled well. So like for mm-hmm. me to figure out that my August video doorbell was listed on here, I had to go and see what that particular mystery device was talking to. And the fact that it was talking to august.com and Rackspace CDN and some other video sites, I was like, oh, that's my doorbell. So there is that, like, it is hard to tell. This is not like the user, the most user-friendly. And some of my IoT devices, such as my Wink or my Ikea Trotfree gateway, those are labeled as non-IoT devices. But mm. And if it thinks that something is a, a phone or a tablet, it actually doesn't collect the data you need on it. So you have to enter the Mac address of these devices to get it to download data, which is kind of frustrating because then you got to go find the Mac address and then enter the first six digits of it.
1: It is, but I can understand why they took that approach. There's a lot of, a lot more personal information on people's phones and tablets. So they they don't want to cross that line. And I totally respect that. So
0: Yes, but as a warning to all of you guys who are like, yes, I totally want to do this, you're probably going to want to, you know, have the MAC addresses handy for some of your hub related devices. The most of the ones that it seems to think are computers are hubs and in one case there's a thermostat that is HomeKit enabled, so I'm not sure if it's the HomeKit functionality that's that seems to be a common denominator here. I've got a couple devices that are using Weak encryption, but actually I was surprised out of the 31 devices I have, only five are using weak or no encryption. So, yay.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, that's good. That's very good. I mean, and everybody's smart home is different, so obviously your results will vary if you use this, but... uh It's nice that this is the types of information this is checking, such as, um, who it's contacting, who, where are the devices pinging servers? You know, is it out in China? Is it in the middle of nowhere or is it where you would expect it to be? Um, how much data is exchanged? between the devices and how often. I think it looks for hard-coded passwords and such too, but I'm not 100% sure.
0: Well, we will get sure because next week's guest is actually going to be one of the creators of this program. So we'll, we'll get a lot more information on what this is going to be used for. So if you're a little uncertain, you're like, oh, I don't know if I want to download this yet until I really know I'm doing good in the world, then you can wait. And we will put that question To Danny, who is one of the creators, so
1: excellent. And uh, if you don't want to wait, because right now this is only available for Mac OS, it is coming to Linux and coming to Windows. So you can sign up for a wait list if you're on either of those platforms, or if you're like me, I just noticed that the uh, source code is available written in Python, and I might put it together for Linux and see if I can get it running.
0: Oh, if you do, let me know. I'll tell the the folks over at Princeton. (laughs)
1: <laughs> they'll say, hey, great, Let give us that and we'll just distribute it. So there. that's fine. They can do go. the same thing. So whatever.
0: <laughs> All right. So that's how you can monitor kind of what devices are maybe giving up some of your privacy and maybe security on your own network. Let's talk about the loss of privacy in everyday life. The New York Times has been doing a story or a series on privacy in the IoT era that is alternatively like excited me because it's great coverage and enraged me because it's stupid coverage. So one of the better stories, though, was basically reporters at The New York Times accessed publicly available webcams in the city, and then they ran that data that they had against, they used Amazon's recognition facial recognition service, and they pulled photos from the websites of offices around the places where the cameras were. And then they were able to identify some of the people walking around on public webcams.
1: As you said, they, they looked at public data, public photos that were available on the web of people that may be in the area, so to speak, people who worked in the area. So it's not like they you know, were spying Were using photos that were gained illegally to train the model or get actual results here. Right. So it's this is all publicly available photos tied to the recognition system. It cost them 60 bucks to do this for a day. And yeah, they recognize actual people.
0: And they even talked to one of them who was actually on his way to an appointment to meet a job candidate. Dun, dun, dun. Mm -hmm. So the way I look at this is, well, there's a couple ways to look at it. But personally, I look at this and I'm like, hey, if someone has my photo, They can actually use a service like this, pull camera data from all over the place just to see if they can find me. That's not crazy. And as someone who's had a stalker in the far distant past, that is scary as all get out. Mm -hmm. And even if you think about governments have access to our face because they have our passports and driver's license. A lot of our driver's license data is now our face and our names are tied together in a in a database. There's a new standard of driver's license. I know mine is in there. So if you imagine law enforcement being able to use this sort of service for manhunt purposes, mm-hmm. I mean, is it if there's a serial killer on the loose, yay, if they're just tracking like a dissident Oh, that's real dicey. It yeah. really makes the surveillance state cheap and accessible to more and more people. And it also makes it cheap and accessible to just anyone who wants to find out where you are. Like maybe your boss is like, yeah. hey, were they really sick?
1: So that's kind of where I was going. This is not something that is difficult to do. It is easily accessible, both the public photos, like if I do a image search for me, there'll be 100 photos there, I'm sure. And then using Amazon service or any any similar service, I don't want to pin this on Amazon, of course, as well as publicly available cameras in, in New York City. And listen, I know, like I've been over to London, there's cameras everywhere. So I know there are regions of the world where this is already commonplace. But um, in New York City, you know, they have those Link NYC kiosks, which I used to use all the time. They're, they're Wi-Fi kiosks that are up and down various parts of Manhattan. Uh, They all have two security cameras on those. And when you add in the actual traffic cams that are in New York City, you have access to like 3000 cameras in New York City, tying that to publicly available photos. It's I'm probably pretty easy to track when I go to New York City. Um, So anybody could really do this.
0: Oh, yeah. And again, the stalking issue Mm that I mean, government surveillance is scary. And I'm definitely concerned about that. Like imagine using it to profile people who are in the ICE databases that you want people to. Sure. Or in just think about all the mistakes that governments make, right? The people who are on the no fly list without recourse, you know, and they're like, oh, their life turns into a pain. Imagine something like a government era applied to something like this. And suddenly you're being monitored all the time by the government, maybe without any sort of due process or...
1: You, you don't have to imagine it. Just talk to anybody who lives in China right now. And I say that because we've covered what's going on over there with the cameras and the social scorers and so on and so forth. But One of my classmates lived in China for 20 years, and she's been in the U.S. for the last five. And we had a lengthy discussion over all of that, what's going on over there. And the stories that she told me were scary. She's very careful how she speaks to her parents over video chat from the U.S. to China. I mean, it's really scary. So you don't have to imagine it. Just look what's going on there. Ah. Yeah,
0: That is my very inarticulate cry of rage there. And I do think we need some pushback on the legislation front. I I hate when people are like, it's too late. I'm like, no, it's not too late. It is getting late. Don't get me wrong. The horse has run out of the barn, but we can still fix some of this. But that won't happen anytime soon in Illinois.
1: No, it's rather um, convenient that they were just looking at the Keep Internet Devices Safe Act, the Illinois State Senate. They passed this act on April 10th. And basically, it's a bill that would ban internet device manufacturers from collecting audio from internet-connected devices, but without disclosing it to consumers. The bill seemed to have a lot of teeth. I mean, there was a $50,000 fine and so on and so forth. But the actual bill that got past has a lot less teeth. And that's mainly because of two companies that we're familiar with, Amazon and Google, who were kind of against it because why? Well, they've got internet connected devices with microphones all over the place and people are buying them left and right. So
0: rules said, you know, you had to disclose if there was a microphone. Yay.
1: Um, yeah, we're it all also for that.
0: created penalties for accidental activations in required companies to explain what happened. In the case of accidental. And when suddenly you're sitting there and the TV's on, or maybe no one's saying anything. And all of a sudden, Madame A pops up and is like, the weather in Kazakhstan is, and you're like, what
1: is happening? (laughs) It is cold. (laughs) Yes, no, no, you're right. And, and, and I've had phantom digital assistant answers to questions I did not ask from time to time. And it always makes me wonder, but, uh, you know, I certainly advocate for consumer privacy and controls. I also understand that the technology is not perfect. And some things are just, gosh, darn it, honest glitches. But there are times when these things are getting hacked and people are listening to us when they shouldn't be.
0: Well, and I don't know if companies are necessarily putting in place the right practices to protect our privacy. We just found out that there is a team of folks at Amazon that listen in on some utterances. It's a small percentage, but Mm -hmm. Google on the flip side takes the voice utterances and tries to warp the the audio. So you can't tell who it is. Amazon just puts those out there. You need some sort of human accountability if you want this to get better, right? Humans have to Mm -hmm. check and make sure the AI is learning properly and help annotate things. But, you know, are there ways you can do it with, with more respect for the people who's voice data you're using? Probably.
1: Yeah. And and I wonder, I'm sure this wasn't the primary impetus of this, but we spoke a few weeks ago about Google moving natural language processing to the edge on devices as opposed to being connected and sending it to the cloud all the time. That's kind of like a benefit in my book that they're gaining a little bit of saying, hey, you know, not everything is going to the cloud anymore. Your data is local and more protected as a result. It gives them a chance to say that. Although again, I don't think that was the reason. I think the reason was to enable more functionality when you don't have internet access and get more people using the services and feel comfortable with them. So,
0: All right. That's all about connected things. Let's talk about Intel, which is disconnecting from its modem business. It's actually, it's exiting its 5G smartphone modem business, and then it will evaluate its modem business for PCs, IoT devices, and other data-centric devices. Also in line with this, these two stories are definitely related, Qualcomm and Apple settled their big licensing lawsuit. These are related because Qualcomm is basically... Should I say the best? The only?
1: The de facto standard when it comes to mobile modems.
0: Right. There you go. That was good. The de facto standard. And Intel got into this business. And we heard a lot years ago when Intel got into this business and started actually producing these modems, we heard that they weren't very good. And my hunch is Apple ended up settling with Qualcomm because they realized that they're going to, Intel's not producing a viable part, basically. So they're just going to have to suck it up and continue working with Qualcomm.
1: I think that's part of it. Intel modems actually have improved, and certainly not to the standard of a Qualcomm modem, but the most recent iPhones, some models do use the Intel modem. So Apple at least had enough faith in the product to you know, actually use them. But there was also talk recently about Intel being f- further behind on developing its 5G modem than Qualcomm and That put Apple at a, I guess, a crossroads. like, what are we going to do here if we rely on them as a supplier? So I think they wanted to just go with Qualcomm as a result, and it was just easier to settle. And I don't know the settlement terms, but I believe they dropped all lawsuits. There must be some money-changing hands or some deal that says we will use you as our primary modem supplier going forward for at least x number of years so
0: yeah and they um, would, it was a pretty big price differential it was like a 20 something mm-hmm. dollar licensing fee versus a 7 dollar licensing fee so my hunch is they they met in the middle somewhere <laughs> yeah probably
1: but but again you know from a from a mobile standpoint we don't care as much for this show but intel seems out of that business what does it mean for intel connectivity in smaller devices, IoT devices, they're going to look into it. My gut says they're just going to exit this market entirely.
0: And why does your gut say that?
1: Because Intel is finally, after years and years of dominating so many key markets, they've had a lot of frustration against the smaller upstarts. And I wouldn't call ARM small, obviously, but Qualcomm being an ARM licensee, I think they finally realized we have to pick and choose our battles a little bit more carefully.
0: Got it. And yeah, this is not fun battle. And Intel has gotten out of some of the IOT, the smaller IOT chips in business. Mm -hmm. So it does make sense. Kind of sad. I don't know. I, I was never really sold on this. I mean, Intel had its X scale business way back in the day that was ARM based and they got rid of that and they really doubled down on their current architecture. I see a lot more promise with Intel in their, you know, FPGA business. The one thing I will say they do seem to be with Movidius doing a lot with kind of inference at the edge mm, and computer, computer vision, vision and such. At the edge so mm-hmm. that's not the radio side that's the processor side. so we'll probably still see them they're really working hard there and that makes sense. They should really focus there. Hey, speaking of computer vision <laughs>
1: Apple. Apple, Apple, Apple. I still don't think Apple's going to build a car, but it's clear to me that at the very least, Apple wants to be the platform that an autonomous vehicle runs on at some point in the future. They have been investing in LiDAR technology with their own internal groups, but according to Reuters, they have held talks with four companies, or at least four companies, as possible suppliers for next-gen LiDAR sensors. So... I'm not sure what their overall strategy is. I still think it's to be the platform and not the vehicle it's per se, not not a Tesla. They're taking their time getting there for sure, but that's typical Apple. We'll wait till everybody else enters the market, and then we'll come in with a better product, and hopefully everybody will buy it.
0: Yay. Everybody <laughs> being s- the car
1: manufacturers. Correct. Correct. In this case, correct. Okay. You don't seem too enthused, though. That was a kind of a half-hearted yay.
0: Eh, this whole area is so up in the air. Speaking of Waymo, they have an app coming, and we might be excited because, like, maybe it's not going to be the car manufacturers. Maybe it's going to be these weird third-party transportation providers for self-driving cars. And I don't I don't yeah. know. Yeah. So Waymo has an app, and it's
1: not You can get it. You can get it right now on the Google Play Store. And still, unless you live in the Phoenix metro area, it really doesn't do you a bit of good. But it suggests that Alphabet's Waymo division is ready to start expanding beyond its test area in the Phoenix metro area. So that's a yay, I guess, depending on where they roll it out. Uh, I did not install the app, but I saw the screenshots, and I don't see any mention of the cost of a, a ride. Zero mention of this. I don't get that.
0: Still in development. But mm. you know who does have driverless cars? or
1: rather? I do. I do. <laughs> and this makes a lot of sense for me. The US Army. They actually have, I wouldn't call them self-driving cars. They're more like self-driving trucks that would deliver supplies, fuel, food, and other supplies in combat zones. That makes total sense. I mean, why have why run the risk of injury to somebody or a group of people, you know, deploying supplies in a battlefield when you could just have a self-driving truck filled with supplies handle it for you? I think it's, I think it's wonderful. They're moving quickly on this too. They've, they've demonstrated their first 10 down your way at Fort Bliss, Texas, and they have 60 additional trucks planning to be deployed at two other U.S. military bases over the next year.
0: Awesome. They're on bases for now and then hopefully deployed for combat.
1: Well, it'd be nice if they didn't have any combat to deploy to, but yes, yes, that's correct.
0: Yes, it would be nice. And then we could get rid of the entire defense system and boom, have lots of money for other things. Yay. Not going to happen. All right, let's do some quick news bits.
1: I've actually been looking into certifications. I'm going to take my Google Cloud developer associate certification test in a month or two. But I just realized today that you can also be a certified Madam A skill builder. So if you want to pad your resume and you like building Madam A skills, you can take a test to be a certified skill builder. Speaking of other developments, AI has actually created a brand new sport that you, yes, you can play. The game is called SpeedGate. I'll talk about the game in a second, but what's really interesting is how this was created. A group of developers at AKQA, which is a global innovation agency, has trained a neural network by feeding it information on over 400 traditional sports. And the AI came out with a sport called SpeedGate, which actually looks really cool. It's got a ball very similar to what rugby has. You kick and pass that ball kind of like rugby and soccer. There's no kicking, hitting, biting, scratching, or anything like that allowed. Thank you, AI, for that. And basically, there are three sets of gates On the field that the AI developed, you kick or pass the ball through the center gate, which lets you then score. You would then have possession to score in the end gate, uh, which you can do by throwing or kicking the rugby-like ball. There are three forwards and three defenders on every team. And I think it's kind of cool. There's a whole speed gate website where you can see the rules, the field, and you can say, I want SpeedGate in my community. And I don't think this will be the next Sport of America on TV, but it looks like fun.
0: Maybe I'll get a SpeedGate team together and we can play. There Uh, you go. The IoT Podcast SpeedGate team. Woo!
1: Yay! we need four more people. (laughs) We can do
0: that. All right. Yeah, Schlage
1: Code, Go tell them about it.
0: Okay. Schlage, which is a sometimes sponsor of the show. They have their encode lock, which is their Wi-Fi lock. And now it works with the ring doorbell. So when people come ring your ring, you can unlock your lock right from within the app. That is cool. Cool. And
1: more right? integrations are always good.
0: Yes. I'd love to see that with other doorbells. I know Schlage's been working with Amazon for their Amazon key program. I, I assume this is an outlay of something like that.
1: It is. This is his Amazon key.
0: As someone who does not have a Ring doorbell, right now I have an August doorbell, and if I had a Nest doorbell, which is the next doorbell I will have, then I would love for that to work together, and maybe one day it will. We got a question actually this week, which was not from the listener hotline. This was an emailed question about running OpenHAB or Home Assistant. We had someone who wanted to run it in the cloud, so Kevin kind of answers that question on our blog, but we also wanted to talk about it a little here.
1: But yeah, for those who aren't familiar, OpenHab and Home Assistant are uh, localized open source smart home platforms. So if you want like total control over everything and you're a DIY person, you can do this with like a $35 Raspberry Pi. But this was an interesting question because uh, the person who wrote in said, is there an easy way to set up a site-to-site VPN to Azure or AWS or I'd presume Google Cloud Platform, even though they didn't mention that one, and host my containers in the cloud. That way I could host them and compare them easily until I get a final solution to run locally. I love that idea because, yeah, I mean, you got to set up all these systems and spend time configuring them. And by the time you set it all up, you're kind of like, it's good enough. I'm not even going to try the other system because I don't have 10 more hours to figure this all out. But it's actually quite easy to do this with OpenHab. It is not so easy. In fact, I can't find a way to do it with Home Assistant. And the main reason is... Home Assistant, they don't believe in the cloud as a smart home platform, I guess. They have a nice blog post that I've linked to in my post basically saying, you know, the cloud's magical, it's great, but if it breaks down your house should be able to continue functioning. So it's really an extension of your smart home, not running your smart home is what they say. So I get why I could not find Home Assistant in the cloud. OpenHAB though, you could do it and you can do it with containers. If you want to set up a Docker container, there's easy to follow instructions. If you want to set it up yourself by a bunch of command lines, I found tutorials and Most of them are on AWS, but the same principles apply to say a Google Cloud platform, a Microsoft, Azure. You pretty much have to set up a computing instance, very low power. You don't need anything massive, which you know, costs increase as you add more resources to the cloud. Set everything up and yeah, you could do it. I'd say just bite the bullet and spend 35 bucks on a Raspberry Pi. And even if you don't use it for this long term, there's so many things you can do with a Pi. So that's just me. I would do that as opposed to Running it in the cloud and incurring some costs, although you can get a free tier, free trial of these cloud products. So, I say go with the pie. But yes, you can do it with Open Hat. Pie
0: versus cloud, go pie. Yep, go pie. Team pie. Okay, and I promised you guys a discussion of IoT industrial security because last month, around the middle of March we all heard about an aluminum company called Norsk Hydro. And what happened is they had ransomware that infected their systems and shut them down, costing them up to $41 million. This is pretty big. And a company called CyberX, which does industrial IoT security, they published a blog post about the ransomware, which is called LockerGoga, basically talking about what it is and or what they think it is cuz we don't have a full postmortem on this yet. So what they did is they now can identify locker goga and they talked about how the attack probably happened. So what they think happened was the attackers gained access to the system through an exposed remote connection. So like an RDP port, they also likely use stolen credentials, or they did a brute force password attack. The stolen credentials, if they stole them in a lot of the industrial kind of hacking attacks, what CyberX's David Atch told me this week was that a lot of times they're getting those passwords from contractors. So third-party contractors The IT world is pretty familiar with this after the Sony hack, which happened because the attackers got access through third-party contractors to Sony's computer system. So I think a lot of corporate IT departments are familiar with this, but maybe not a lot of the industrial companies. And there's a lot of sharing happening. Not only are there third-party contractors that you might share with files and data with and let them on your corporate network. A lot of times those people can actually come on your OT, your operational tech network that isn't even connected to the internet. So those guys might come in and plug their laptops directly into like some equipment so they can diagnose something wrong. And in that case, that's when the malware will get on your OT network. So, this is a big problem. It shuts down manufacturing. It can cause like safety issues. It can cause a lot of problems. And it is becoming more common because manufacturers, because it is so expensive to shut down a manufacturing plant, they will pay ransomware. And that makes them a delicious target. In addition, CyberX found that the ransomware here actually increased in sophistication over a few months. So, earlier versions of this software were not as good. And they saw that there was plenty of code that had been adapted, basically, to make it a little bit more, a little bit better. We're not going to get too into the weeds here. So basically, this points to the sophistication, the growing sophistication of attackers trying to attack industrial places.
1: It also highlights what I would say is a key best practice. If you're going to bring contractors in, which many, many companies do for very good reason, they should be given a corporate-owned device that has been, you know, found to be clean and clear. Sanitized. As opposed to sanitized, right. Rather than using maybe their own devices and such, which, are, you know, you've brought in a potential bad actor by allowing non-managed devices onto your network. For good reason, you brought them in, but still that doesn't justify it. So they may need particular software for diagnostics and such, but that should be worked out in advance. And that should be added to the managed devices and made sure that they are clean. And then that's it. They shouldn't be using their own devices to connect to the network or to devices.
0: Yeah. And I will say in the industrial world, companies like Honeywell and Emerson have done a lot of work with like USB drives. So they will inspect Mm. USB drives, like there are devices on the factory floor where you'll plug in your USB drive first into that device. And if it detects anything, it shuts it down and you can't use it. So maybe... Given how highly specific some of the software is and how proprietary it is, if you could have some sort of health scan of a device before it gets into the network. And mm-hmm. then the other solution, which obviously CyberX is promoting because they are a network monitoring solution, is to have some sort of awareness of what's traversing your network. And there are tons of companies, not just CyberX doing this, but it is becoming increasingly important in the IoT for those things to exist. Kind of like IoT inspector for the home. I was
1: just going to say that. Full circle. They need an, an industrial version of that.
0: So stay tuned for more on IoT security. But first, we are going to go to our voicemail. This week's voicemail from the IoT podcast hotline is brought to you by Afero. With the fifth largest IoT patent portfolio in the world, Afero provides a proven IoT platform that doesn't risk your brand. Afero customers have experienced as much as an 80% reduction in time to market and 10x higher activation rates. Learn more at afero.io. Okay, and if you have a question for us, you can call us at 512-623-7424. And for the month of April, we will be giving away a connect.io alarm system thingy thingy is a really terrible way to do this. But what this device does is it connects to SmartThings Hub and your alarm panel. It's a very much a DIY thing. And it allows you to turn your old alarm system, your old wired alarm system into something that you can use from an app. Very cool. We Get a lot of questions about that. So somebody else can try this and play with it. It's a fun device. You'll enjoy it. This week's question is from Scott. Let's hear it.
2: Hi, Stacy and Kevin. This is Scott in Houston. I have a question regarding smart locks, which I've been researching for quite some time. Is there any such thing as a double cylinder smart lock? I noticed the single cylinder smart locks, but I would like to have a double cylinder smart lock for security purposes. And yes, this can be used online. Thank you.
0: Okay, Scott, this is actually a pretty easy answer because right now these things don't exist and they don't exist because most modern building codes don't allow for double cylinder locks. These are locks for those of you who are not familiar that need to be unlocked with a key from both the inside and the outside. The reason people tend to gravitate to them is because they're concerned about someone like breaking a window and then reaching in and opening up the deadbolt and then getting access to your house. My in-laws actually had these locks for a long time, and I had nightmares about them dying in fires because they never knew where their keys were, and it was such a pain to get them out. So in the case of a connected lock, if you had a keypad on both sides, that might actually address some of the issues in the sense that if you don't know the keypad, you can't unlock it.
1: Um, Right, even if you broke the window, you couldn't get in because you wouldn't know the combination. Because if you knew the combination, you wouldn't break the window.
0: But it does, there's still the issue of if you need to get out, what if you're a guest in the house and you don't know the combination, how do you get out?
1: Or the batteries go out on the lock. Yeah, it still has a safety concern issue there. Yeah, I don't don't
0: love the idea of locking people in houses, I'll be honest.
1: Yeah, I mean, some people I know, I wouldn't mind locking them in their house, but no, in general, no. I'd be shocked if a manufacturer came out with it just because the building codes have moved away from this.
0: Now, people still manufacture these types of locks and- Manual locks, yes. After your home inspection, for example.
1: But nobody makes a smart one right now.
0: Right. Not that we could find. Nope. So there you go, Scott. All right. That concludes this week's news segment. Kevin, thank you so much. And everyone else, stay tuned for Nadir Israel, the CTO of Armis. He is going to be talking about some of the wackier and crazy devices that he has found connected on corporate networks that could pose problems. Plus, we're going to talk about broadly industrial and enterprise IoT security. It'll be fun. Hey, everyone, we are taking a quick break from the Internet of Things podcast for a message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is Software AG, and I have Mark Olson, who is part of the Center of excellence at Software AG on the IoT and analytics team. Let's kick this off by reminding our listeners what it is that Software AG does and how you guys work within the IoT.
3: Software AG has been innovating for some 50 years. We operate in 70 countries, headquartered in Germany. Our solutions are deployed across 70% of Fortune 1000 clients globally. Software segments include IoT, analytics, integration and business process management. Specifically to IoT, Cumulosity is a IoT device and application platform to connect and manage a device or millions of devices. We then apply AI, machine learning, and analytics to find root causes to problems in real time. Cumulosity, through automation, then operationalizes these insights to solve real-world business problems. Our go-to-market focus and strategy is around three areas, OEM, white-label co-innovations, horizontal implementations to specific use cases, and a vertically focused go-to-market around manufacturing, smart city, energy, utility, transportation, medical, and oil and gas.
0: Okay, that's awesome. So we're here today to talk about how companies can succeed in the IoT. What do you recommend?
3: First, to define the use case and business value at the start of your IoT journey. Second, think about integration and DevOps alignment from the inception of your project. Third, think about driving intelligence and insights to the edge or a device is extremely important to achieve automation and real business value. And finally, extending cloud platforms with SDKs really means a long and costly development cycle and time to value in terms of years, depending on the specific use case.
0: Those are some pretty big pitfalls. How does Software AG help you solve those?
3: Out of the box, Cumulosity has delivered and commoditized 85% of the technical requirements components to deliver a true end-to-end IoT solution. It supports 150 plus gateways and 400 plus protocols. Deployment models include cloud, on-prem, hybrid, and edge. Ecosystems include some of the largest companies in the world. Software AG provides solution accelerators to achieve the remaining 15% against your particular use case. Multi-tenancy is offered out of the box to provide support for DevOps and alignment to it. Additional plugins can be made available to connect to any data source and workflows. And time to value is measured in a matter of days, weeks, if not a month.
0: Awesome. And Mark, where can I go to learn more about software AG and Cumulosity?
3: You can go to softwareag.com forward slash IoT to start your free trial today.
0: Hey, everyone, welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham. And today's guest is Nadir Israel, who is the CTO and co founder of security firm Armis. Hi, Nadir, how are you doing?
2: Hi, Stacy. I'm great. How are you?
0: I am really excited to talk to you, although I bet I'm not as excited as you guys because you just raised last week $65 million in funding. That is a lot of money. What is happening with Armis?
2: <laughs> well, Armis is doing uh, really great. I think, well, great for the company, maybe slightly more problematic, the fact that we're seeing a lot of problems in the world with IoT. So in that sense, there's a lot of space for us to come and help organizations and kind of help them protect themselves from the dangers about. But we've had quite a year, say that a lot of new clients, a lot of very large organizations that are using us for visibility and security of different unagentable devices that they have. And I realize that's a made-up word, but kind of encapsulates what we're trying to say. So it's been tremendous. And in that, I think that the new investment is really about doubling down and being able to provide that solution better for everybody.
0: Okay. And I would say probably this... Actually, I'm going to say all the way since Mirai, we've been hearing a lot about IoT security. Now, I would love to make the distinction between some of the devices that the original Mirai botnet took over, which were networked video cameras, printers, routers. They actually were devices that They had more processing power, they were a little bit smarter, and they had access to more bandwidth. And I think it's worth talking about the distinction between those types of devices and some of the IoT devices that we're a little bit more worried about now, which might, like you say, they're agentless, maybe they're resource constrained, maybe they're just hard to find. So can you kind of make the distinction between where we are in our sophistication when it comes to understanding and securing IoT devices?
2: Yeah, I would separate the world probably not so much by processing power, but by the types of devices that are out there and what are they running. Basically, the world pretty much separates into devices that run standards, albeit old operating systems. And then the devices that run very proprietary software or firmware on them. Now, there is a correlation in a way to what you described around kind of compute power. But really, it boils down into what's running really old Windows, Android, Linux, and what's running very, very specific firmware. Now, the world of those devices that are running really old operating systems is actually very big. I would say that a lot of devices out there that you wouldn't even consider are running these types of operating systems, all the way to digital microscopes and ATMs and even door controllers that are running Windows. There's all kinds of smart assistants and things like that that run old versions of Linux and Android. There's even, you know, those uh, time punch card devices, the things where you sign in to work every day. A lot of those things are running really old Android as well. So I would say that the world of those devices is actually very, very large. And the reason I bring them up is because these are devices that very easily contract any type of malware that you can imagine. An attacker doesn't need to craft something very special. They don't need to do something that specifically targets those devices. They're just really, really easy pickings because they're vulnerable to things that for all intents and purposes should have gone away a long time ago if operating systems were all up to date and patched. So in that sense, Those are, for the most part, the risk surface that organizations are worried about. Now, Naturally, there's all kinds of things that target and specifically abuse devices that have specific firmwares. We've even seen, you mentioned Mirai, but we've even seen a variant of Mirai in Singapore just a month ago that was specifically crafted to take advantage of things that are there. But for the most part, the WannaCries and not patches of the world, the variety of different botnets and crypto mining out there, ransomware, general malware, all these things. The reason IoT is so, so dangerous is because you don't need to do anything special to abuse those devices. Those devices will just naturally contract all kinds of very old and very bad malware, and then create problems for organizations as they try to clean it up.
0: What is the trend happening? Obviously, we're reading in surveys. There are plenty of surveys that come out each month that say, oh, my gosh, CIOs, CTOs, CEOs are all worried about the security of their connected devices. And there feels like a sense of panic. And many are not sure what to do about this. But we've been here before. I feel like we've had this panic before we talked about, you know, viruses on computers, that sort of thing that's actually still happening. We've had it with app systems. So like, how should we think about this? Is the world really ending? Or can we solve this?
2: I take a generally optimistic approach about solving problems. I think that this, to your point, comes in cycles in security. I think that the best thing to equate this to is 10 years ago, the world of applications. Same deal. All kinds of applications running on my devices or being accessed by my devices. I, as a CISO or a CIO, have no idea what they are. I'm completely blind into what people use, what data gets transferred into them. And specifically, the risks around that or the ability to just run anything was a problem. Income, all kinds of solutions, including next-gen firewalls or things like that, which basically give you a good idea as to what's running and also provide the intelligence around understanding what should run and what shouldn't and take action against it. I think that IoT, in essence, is physical applications, right? It's basically it's purpose-built devices that function as applications, except they have a physical reality to them. And I would say that the same problems that existed 10 years ago for applications exist today for devices. Most organizations don't know what devices they have. Even if they do know all kinds of devices, they have no idea what they should be worried about with them. For instance, They don't necessarily know that a particular brand of Chinese IP camera has a known Chinese government backdoor built into it. And this is something that comes up on a, I would say, somewhat scary time schedule. These types of things come up a lot in various forms and various uh, ways. But the point is that that visibility gap is the first driver in security for almost everything. It's what do I have and what do I need to know about it? Then the second piece to that puzzle is what do I do about it? Basically, what can I do to secure these devices? And thankfully, a lot of these devices are extremely reliant on their connectivity, uh, which is also what creates the risk surface in the first place. So I would say that being able to intelligently limit their connectivity, intelligently police what these devices can do is a very, very effective method at securing them. And that's really the bread and butter of what Armist does. Uh, Imagine uh, an organization that has no idea what devices they have, at all and then you come in and show them basically show them a complete inventory of all the devices that they have and on top of that layer in the intelligence of what they should know about all these devices and once they know about all these devices and once they know about the risk provide easy steps into securing them this is really in a nutshell what organizations seem to be concerned about and also what they're trying to solve when it comes to their IoT
0: so how worried should an organization be? I feel like right now when you buy some of these connected devices, like maybe your your elevator company is like, hey, let's do elevators as a service. And you're like, yeah, that sounds great. Or maybe someone comes in with a connected lighting package. Are companies aware that they're broadening their attack area by a significant amount?
2: That is a terrific question, because I can tell you that in many cases, surprisingly enough, no, they don't. The reason is that traditionally things like office spaces, building automation systems, things like that, they don't really go through any type of IT procurement process. Think about TVs in the hallway, for instance, of a building for a company. Normally, the people who install that are third-party contractors. The facilities group are the ones that contract them in the first place. It's not really a process that goes through the general IT procurement process. Now, not just that, You mentioned two different things that happen a lot. And I'll focus on the elevator one because it's an interesting one. Connected elevators are a thing. The reason is that it's just a cost reduction thing. Basically, the company that sells the elevators wants to be able to support them remotely so they don't have to send a technician every time there's a problem. They want to be able to monitor and prevent problems, prevent issues. It's all a very good thing up until the point you realize that that elevator needs to be connected somehow to the internet. And usually that somehow is through uh, the company's infrastructure, basically the network of the company. Now, that presents an interesting dilemma because, on the one hand, IT security at that point, if they suddenly realize that that's happening, can come and say, There's no way I'm connecting an elevator in my building to my network to the internet. But on the other hand, at that point, the company would come and say, But they gave us a 20% discount for doing this, so of course we're doing it. I think that IT security are increasingly facing these types of issues where the mission of the business or something around the way the business works is demanding that more and more of these things be put in. Digital transformation is creating smart conference rooms. It's creating supply chains that have interconnected devices between them. They're creating building automation systems like connected elevators that serve us all. But really, at the end of the day, all of these are creating an amounting risk surface where the security is put in a position where they don't want to be the ones who say no. They want to be the ones who say how to do it correctly But they're at a loss into how to integrate all these things without a proper solution.
0: That makes a ton of sense. So then the solution for them is what? Please do not say buy your software.
2: (laughs) Putting aside for a second Armis as a solution, it really comes down into the same principles that have always guided security when approaching these types of problems. It's around visibility, it's around monitoring, and then it's about proactive security. Visibility means they have to be aware of all these things. They have to be aware of what's connected to the network. There are multiple ways to go about this, uh, and a lot of companies are trying out different strategies. But the point is that the first step is for security to realize that there is nothing that's really outside of their scope and responsibility. You know, five years ago, CISOs weren't expected to protect IP cameras. And then botnets happened, and then a lot of other things happened, and suddenly IP cameras are all fair game. IP cameras have to be under uh, the purview of security. And it's the same with everything else. And it starts with visibility. Being able to account for every device that you have also means being able to account for the risk surface that they create. Basically, all those folks that got hit by WannaCry or not NotPetya The devices that got hit were essentially unmanaged devices. Every device that had endpoint security on it worth its salt uh, would have stopped something like that. But the problem is that if you have even one device tucked away in some closet somewhere, or sometimes even buried inside a wall, because 10 years ago there was a server running Windows XP and someone decided to put it inside a wall, all these devices, it's enough that you have one, just one device, and it can take down an entire facility. So the visibility piece, being able to account for all these things is key. And then the second piece is generally network hygiene around devices, being able to implement policies, no matter how you do it. If you do it automatically, if you do it manually, policies are really important. Like I said, connectivity is the main thing that relates to IoT. It's the main aspect of what makes them smart, kind of quote unquote. And so limiting connectivity intelligently is really, really the most important part in policing them. And also, of course, with reducing risk surface. So back to your question, I would say that getting a good handle and a good comprehensive handle at that, at all the assets within the organization is the first step. It's so, I would say, primary in that sense. It's such a basic step that all the rest after that, it will flow kind of directly from what you find out. And trust me, organizations find out all kinds of things, anything from connected treadmills all the way to door controllers that are running windows from 20 years ago, you name it. There's all kinds of interesting stuff on connected networks these days.
0: Let's break down some of the crazier things you've seen. We'll have a little fun here. What have you seen running on networks that you're like, oh, that's connected, and that is a surprise?
2: Ah, wow, all kinds of things. First of all, the treadmill part is really interesting. I mean, most companies don't even consider the fact that there is such a thing as a connected treadmill, but that uh, that happens more often than you'd think.
0: I assume these are in company gyms?
2: Well, yeah, sometimes it's company gyms. Sometimes, by the way, it's things that employees or departments bought for themselves and just connected. So not always is it the, the company gym specifically where that at. But yeah, that would be one of them. I think that there's a wide variety of gaming consoles and things like that that people connect. Again, things that, depending on your point of view, it might seem trivial and it might be very surprising. But I can tell you that most organizations are surprised to find just how many they have connected. Smart assistants things like, you know, Amazon Echoes and Google Homes and things like that. Absolutely all over the place. Digital microscopes, you wouldn't ever in a million years think run Windows. But not only are these types of things connected to networks, in some cases, they can even be patient zero and spreading things like WannaCry, for instance, or kind of other types of ransomware. And, And by the way, you named one example before, I think a lot of organizations don't realize just how much of their building automation infrastructure is connected to the network, just how many Things like door controllers or lighting fixtures or all kinds of other things are connected to their network. And just for the heck of it, I'll also say that a lot of companies don't realize that these kind of emergency call stations, like uh, you know how you have them in, in hallways sometimes these defibrillators plus kind of an emergency nurse call station. Mm-hmm. These types of things are also network connected and no one even knows it's there. So, yeah, definitely interesting things that come up when you do kind of a discovery like that.
0: Huh. Okay. I like that. And let's talk. One of the things that we've been talking about recently on the show is this idea of connected medical devices and connected medicine. And I worry a lot about this because I feel like hospitals' IT security is not their strong suit. Saving people's lives is hopefully their strong suit. So, what are you seeing in the medical world? Because they are really embracing connectivity in ways that I think are very helpful, but are also a little bit scary.
2: First of all, Hospitals have gone through quite the transformation, I think, over the past two years from being and and still being very, very, obviously, patient-saving oriented and kind of human lives and and everything that accompanies that. The problem is that that exact orientation also made them targets. They're increasingly the target of cyber attacks that are meant to cripple their operations until they pay. So where once uh, hospitals mostly had to worry about stealing of patient information and fraud and things like that. Today, they're handling a much tougher situation. What happens? Someone takes over your MRI machine that costs you quite a bit and takes it offline until you pay them. That's a dilemma that for most hospitals is a really, a really tough one. I mean, they need that device to save lives. They need it back, but it's a predicament because like I can tell you, the statistics show that if you pay ransom for ransomware, you're going to get hit again. It kind of makes sense in a cynical way, but it's just the way the world works. So. Increasingly over the past two years, more and more hospitals realize that they have to get a handle on what's going on with their medical devices. They have to get a handle on everything in their environment, and they have to do it quickly. So to your point, understanding network-connected medical devices, understanding their weaknesses, understanding what they should or should not be doing, and being able to lock everything down is a very, very big thing for most large hospitals today today. And I would add to that that some of the problems that they face is that a lot of the medical devices that they have, kind of to the earlier point in our conversation, are running really old standard operating systems. So think Windows XP, think Windows 7, which is going to be end of life at the end of this year. These are things that are hard for them because medical devices, given everything that they go through, FDA certification, all the different certifications that these devices went through, mean that the hospitals also can't secure them traditionally. They normally can't install anything on these devices. They can't really do anything with them, but monitor and kind of take a look what they're doing. So they're in a very, very interesting dilemma there. Let's spend two seconds chatting about maybe what we see happening with these types of devices. I would say that beyond the general sense of these are problems, I can tell you from our own experience that we've seen anything from MRI machines that were taken over and connected to command and control servers in Russia, all the way to ransomware spreading across hospital networks uh, in general. Even one fairly elaborate case where a client uh, a hospitals was faced with a situation where an infusion pump connected to a live patient had malware running on it, but it was in a a scenario where you can't disconnect it because there's a person connected to it. So they had to have a nurse sit next to it all night and make sure that device is still operational, not shutting down, not doing anything weird. And that's a situation that I think that most hospitals, that's kind of a doomsday scenario, reaching that point. To your point around kind of what to do about all this. So The answer is that you have to take the very design of these devices into account when you're approaching the problem from a solution standpoint. All these devices, at the end of the day, the risk surface that they pose is a network-based risk surface. So at the end of the day, their connectivity is exactly what's putting them in harm's way in the first place. Now, a lot of these devices were not designed uh, with security in mind, or not too much security in mind, I'd say. There's a lot of things like open ports and communications, a lot of things that can be abused. And what I'd say is that that very connectivity is exactly what any solution that tries to solve this problem has to look at.
0: I will hope that that happens. All right. Well, Nadir, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you very much, Stacy. That's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, if you'd like more IoT news, sign up for my newsletter at stacyoniot.com. We'll see you next week we